Mr. Barr, hang on. Let me set things up here. I know what I got to do. I got to hit that button. There we go. Get rid of the echo. Hang on just a second. Let me tee things up. I brought you on just a little too fast. Uh, okay. Welcome to the Nick at Night Show, folks. The numbers are 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. And if you didn't recognize that voice, you should have. Uh, that is Ron Barr. He is the head of the Ottawa Trucker, the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association. He is also a uh, entrepreneur extraordinaire. Um, is got his fingers in many many pies. Ron, how are you? I'm great. You know where I just I'm in uh, Simcoe or Port Dover, Ontario this evening. I'm uh, a board of directors for the South Coast uh, Wine and Grape Growers Association, and I just took on the treasurer's position this evening. If, if I don't need any more on my shoulders, but, you know, it is what it is. And, uh, I like to keep it busy. Busy is hardly what I would, uh, the way I would describe it. Now, Ron, I have to tell you about a little meeting I had the other day. Uh, my mother-in-law actually yeah. took me out to lunch, um, which was unusual for her. Usually it's the other way around. And uh, she, yeah. after we were done eating, she looked at me and she said, I have come, I have had an epiphany. I said, epiphany? Yeah. That is an odd word. What is this revelation, this epiphany that you've had? She says, well, after much thought and deep consideration, I've decided that I want to be cremated. I said, are you sure? She said, absolutely. I said, there's no doubt in your mind that you want to be cremated. That's right. And my mind is made up and there's nothing you can do to change it. I said, okay, get your coat. <laughs> I no, no. And she she did kind of beat me with her purse and said, "Not right now." <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, I was. Yeah. All of a sudden, I got the bill. Funny that. If I'd known that, I wouldn't ordered steak. Anyway. Um, first of all, before we get into the meat of uh, why you're here, what have you been up to lately? What have I been up to? Well, I've been uh, Nick, uh, I've been very busy with the uh, truckers association. I was in court, uh, which I'll talk about a little later. I was in court three times for uh, three different files. Um, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm in the process of buying a winery with my wife. Oh, my goodness gracious. I have been so busy. I go I go from uh, literally when my feet hit the ground till uh, when I fall in bed at night. Uh, I work straight through, and uh, finding time for lunch and, uh, and uh, dinner is, is sometimes hard pressed. I've got to change my ways. And slow down a bit, but uh, I'm busy, 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 and I like it no other way. Well, you know, I've had a day like that, too. I got up at 11 in the morning, and I was back in bed by 1 in the afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> a, a, yeah. and I like when you say A in today. Mine are seven days a week, 365. Trust me, I can't. I can't I, it's come to a point where I can't even block anymore. I just Okay, let me, uh, let me just, for the, for the listeners who are out there, uh, who were wondering why why I brought you on? There have been some incidents in the last couple of months concerning um, transportation of dangerous goods and uh, truck safety and and that. And uh, a former truck driver myself, uh, I know that that can cause a certain amount of concern, not only amongst the driving public but amongst the drivers themselves. Perhaps you could give us a, a bit of a rundown on some of the things that have happened and, um, you know, just kind of put people's minds at ease a little bit. There was a, a serious chemical spill, and then there was another acci accident. When a wheel. Let's start with the, the wheel, because that was a problem a few years ago where they had a rash of that. 
uh, tractor tire wheels coming off. What was the, when they did the investigation, what did they find? What was the reason for that? I can. I'm just letting. I'm not interrupting. It's unusual for me. No, I, 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 no, but I'm just going through background roads, so I hope I don't lose you. And if I do, I'll call back. Nick, uh, what, what we're really, uh, what we're really seeing is um, there is a, an increase in the rash of uh, incidences that uh, should be preventable on our highways. Um, what, what I'm really learning as a, as a somebody that really uh, advocates for my members, I go to court for them as often as I can, and uh, what I'm Okay, you're breaking up a little bit, but I can still hear you. Let me ask you this, because when I was driving uh, a tractor-trailer back in the 90s, um, it was, if you're not moving, you're not making money. Uh, And, you you know, you get paid when your wheels were turning. And while I understand that, would it not make sense? And tell me whether or not this is even possible, because you would know better than I do. But wouldn't it, to change the way truck drivers are paid to a base salary and then room for performance bonuses. So if a trucking company hires you on, uh, they pay you a base salary of X amount of dollars. And then if as long as you maintain a clean safety record and you, you have deliveries on time and customer satisfaction is high, high enough, you just like in, in our industry, in the broadcast industry, there are uh, a lot of people out there who get a base salary and then are rewarded as the rates, as the, their ratings rise and penalized when they fall. So their performance dictates how much they're going to make, but they don't have to worry about, um, you know, having nothing come in. Uh, one of my big gripes was always, we always seem to be running either into uh, on a Canadian holiday or an American one. Uh, you know, you have Thanksgiving and you have uh, uh, New Year's and you have the different holidays. Just as you were getting started, to, you start to make a little money, everything shut down for three days and you had to get going again. So it was always difficult. It was always a struggle. Does that make sense to be able to, look at the way truck drivers are paid and maybe overhaul that so that they don't feel the pressure to, uh, and I'm not accusing any of, you know, I'm not accusing anybody of anything nefarious here, but the temptation is to cut corners because you're trying so hard to make a dollar. Well, 
Ron? Oh, Ron, are you still there? Okay, I'm going to uh, put him back in the queue. Uh, we lost him. Um, so he's, okay. So I'm going to drop that call. He'll call me back in a minute. Because from what I understand, he was, he's out in the, um, <coughs> in the wilderness between uh, Port Dover and here. So he'll call back in a moment as soon as he gets a decent cell signal. Um, let me just expand on that idea because I hear what Ron's saying. So in other words, to summarize what he had to say before he, he bowed out of the, con before his cell phone decided to bow out of the conversation was that truck drivers have so many things that they're getting dinged for. It's one of the most heavily regulated industries that there is. Okay. I think I have him back. Let's go bring him back on. Ron, is that you? Yes, it is. Nick. There you are. Better? Oh, you sound so much better, too. I don't know how much of what you... Did you um, hear what I, What was I saying when you when you dropped yes. off? Yes. No, I, I heard what you were uh, saying with regards to um, salaries versus hourly. Right. Nick, I don't know. Um, you know, that's an interesting uh, proposition. I don't know how it would, uh, it would uh, flow through because you've got to understand, uh, especially in my industry... Uh, my business uh, dealing with the small to independent, uh, one, two, three, four truck uh, operators, they're struggling to make payroll. They're struggling to even survive right now because of the cap and trade and all the fees and such that have been uh, pounced upon them. Uh, would it work? I'm not sure because, uh, you know, uh, generally uh, when you uh, sell a mile to, uh, to uh, somebody that hires you like a road builder, then you're able to, uh, you know, take out uh, the uh, wage at that point in time. Um, so I don't know if it would work. I don't know if it would uh, be feasible because, uh, you know, it's so sporadic, especially at this time of year when you have half loads on, Nick. That's true, too. That's yep. a big factor where a lot of guys are not working right now. So a lot of guys are, uh, you know, doing what they can to uh, sustain their uh, their own lives. Would it work, Nick? It might, but I don't think that is the uh, would be the solution. I think that would be a component of it. But I think uh, what really has to happen is, um, is that... Uh, we have to get the rates up because, Nick, you know they're going for rates when you were probably driving way back when. They're, so, they're, they're not going for very much more. And, and the incremental cost that we've uh, had to uh, absorb, um, you know, cap and trade, uh, you know, we've had, uh, I, I, we all know Beth uh, Trudeau with regards to uh, the uh, uh, CVOR. It used to not be fee, uh, an annual fee. They imposed an annual fee on it. So it just it just never seems to, uh, to stop. So... Um, would an operator be able to sustain a wage? I don't believe so. Uh, they've got to, as they make it, they got to pay it and do it that way. Yeah, I just think that that conversation needs to get started somewhere so that guys can actually make a living. Because let's face it, there's nothing that anybody buys anywhere that doesn't come in the back of a truck. There's no piece of road that anybody drives on that a truck driver didn't have some part in building. There's no home you live in that a truck driver didn't bring materials to the site. So. Trucking is a huge part of our economy. It's a huge generator of wealth. It's a huge generator of jobs. And to just treat it like a never-ending money bag is just ridiculous. It's, it's so short-sighted as it's not even funny. Now, before I've got some, uh, issue, some other things I want to talk to you about, but before I do that, I want to get back to this, um, uh, what's going on with this whole safety thing. Um, I mean, I know that um, in the, the most recent case with the... With the um, hazardous waste or the hazardous material spill i won't call it waste because we don't know what it was but uh you know there are some very serious concerns 
And I know that the, the, the person who is the most concerned about safety is the driver himself because whether he's pulling dynamite or whether he's pulling, you know, horse manure from Queen's Park, um, that, you know, he's got to go home at the end of the night and he wants to do that as safely as he can. So what kind of things are yeah. being looked at uh, at the moment to try to improve transportation safety? Well, what, what they're really uh, looking at is, um, number one, they're, uh, they're, they're, the enforcement has stepped up considerably um, with a, more training. I'll give you an example. Uh, if you uh, move contaminated soil, for instance, I was uh, not aware that uh, a driver had to be trained uh, into uh, moving that kind of uh, material. Uh, it was brought to our attention by one of our members getting a ticket. And then, uh, in a, you know, and I have uh, registered a number of my members for uh, Ministry of Environment uh, Climate Change and not even aware of these, uh, these rules and regulations. So what, ha what really has to happen is that we have to really look at our, uh, our vehicles. They have to be inspected properly. Our association, the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, Nick, is going to get back to basics. We're going to have a meeting in about three weeks, an annual general meeting, and we're going to bring in the, uh, the MTO. We're going to bring in the uh, by, uh, uh, Ottawa bylaw, by Ottawa Police Services and such. We really need to get these drivers back to basics. Another thing, I've read a statistic today, Nick, with regards to the drivers that are uh, now plying their trade on the roads. They're absolutely under-trained tremendously, but there's a reason why. The, uh, if uh, somebody was to graduate school, it's very hard to get experience on the road. Most guys, by virtue of their insurance uh, um, uh, caveat, uh, must, have, uh, must hire guys with two to three years of driving training or, yeah. or experience. When you get somebody out of school, they don't have the luxury of that. So we've got to do, we've got to really sit down. And I thought when we had the bike accident in uh, the city of Ottawa and the, uh, the federal government uh, made an announcement that they were going to get together with uh, and figure out uh, bike and truck safety, I thought they would come to us, Nick. The, uh, I've talked to the Ontario Truckers Association, the biggest one, and now they're called the Canadian Truckers Association, and they've never even been approached. So, you know, the lip service we're getting from politicians uh, as it relates to wanting to fix a problem, it just isn't materializing. And it's guys and organizations like myself that have to pressure them to say, you know what, we need some help, we need to educate, and we got to get back to basics. And that's just not happening right now, and it's got to start. There's well, no question. I think that basically you're being told in no uncertain terms because they know who you are. And I'm, when I say you, I'm talking about the trucking associations, uh, specifically you, yes, but the trucking associations at large, yeah. they know who's out there and they know why they're there. They just have no interest because if they actually make changes, uh, and let's say they started to do away with some of the frivolous stuff that takes money out of the pockets, like the d tinted windows incident that you mentioned, yeah. or, you know, uh, have <clears throat> no municipal address when plowing snow, like, give me a break. Yeah. This is what you're worried about? It's ridiculous. Of course. Instead, yeah. they should be talking about apprentice programs where uh, uh, a company, whether it be one truck or 100 trucks, you know, the J.B. Hunts and Schneiders of the world or, you know, a guy with uh, mm -hmm. a, a snowplow and a dump truck, allow them to bring on somebody right out of school. Like when I got started, I started driving a shunt truck in Tilbury, Ontario, around town in, in a 1989 Mac. And just I spent eight months going backwards, uh, putting things in hole, putting yeah. trailers in holes, allowing that kind of thing to go on to give these guys some experience before they actually hit the open road. Those are the kind of things they'd be talking about, not about, uh, you know, how to move dirty dirt. I mean, it's just plain stupid. Yeah. 
no question. And, and uh, you know what, I, uh, for seven years, I ran a long haul trucking company. And one of the biggest things, the collapse of that company, notwithstanding I left and, uh, you know, it, it's a hard struggle because I have very, very high standards when I run a business. Nick, we were hard. We went, I took this guy when I walked in, he was doing about 1.7. I took him to $3.8 million in revenues. And we couldn't find drivers, Nick. We couldn't find drivers. I could sell mile after mile after mile. We were coming to a point where, you know, even hiring mechanics, I had offered a guy, he blatantly said to me, uh, he said, give me a hundred grand, I work for him. I swear, Nick, about a week later, I offered him a hundred thousand dollars to be my mechanic. I had 17 trucks. I had about 34 um, uh, trailers. And I said to him, I said, I'll pay you $100,000, but you've got to understand that these are patients and I need my patients to move as much as they can. So if, it, if they break down at four in the morning at a hundred grand, you're going to come in and fix these vehicles. You've got to keep these patients going. But what we're doing now, Nick, is we're not having enough money. We're getting inundated with, with like you say, just everything that, that doesn't really focus on, number one, growing my business producing profit and just uh, having uh, uh, doing what a, a good entrepreneur should do is have fun running his business. They've just put such burden on it that, uh, you know, it's not fun anymore. They're almost pushing you to be not a business owner, to employ your neighbor, but go get a job so you can, uh, you know, be on a payroll and a source deductible and uh, such. So, you know, what's going to happen? What I really think has to happen is, number one, sit down with us. But we are in a, in a terrible position where Every time we go for a raise in the uh, city of Ottawa, for instance, we get the no's because we have contractors in Ottawa that have uh, businesses throughout the province of Ontario. And you know, in a dump truck, we're the highest rate in Ontario at 83 to $85 an hour. Do you know that there's dump trucks that go in Toronto for 68 to 72 to $74 an hour? And it does one other thing. I can't afford to pay a driver, a good driver, a good wage, making 74 to $75 an hour. I've got to pay him 17 18 19 so it has an adverse effect on my, my equipment. Uh, my CVOR takes a pounding when he, uh, he makes mistakes or when he gets caught uh, in uh, enforcement and such. It's just a, it's just a spin that, uh, that we need to address. Then we've got cap and trade. We've got more fees. We've got hydro. I have got, I've got guys that have doubled their hydro from 4500 to $9,000 a month. Where do they pull that out of? Our rates haven't gone up in five years. It's to the point where, you know what? If we're not reasonable and, and sensible, we're going to get hysterical. You're going to see more and more accidents on the roads because people either drive to make money or fix their equipment in downtime and eventually go broke. So, you know, we've got to, uh, we've got to really address it, uh, that the fact that it's not just the driver, it's not the company, it's the burden that the government has put on a small to medium-sized business. All right, hang on there, Ron. I have to take a break. Um, <clears throat> we'll get back to you in just a moment. Uh, so let me do that. Okay, we'll take a break with we'll take a break and come back with Ron Barr of the Greater Ottawa Trucking Association right after this. CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area, and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. 
Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. Technology works so much better when you turn it on. <laughs> uh, Ron, Ronnie's still with us. Yes, I am. Excellent. Good. I wanted to, you mentioned cap and trade. I wanted to talk about that um, because I don't think it's going to have a good impact, but I am curious. Um, when I remember when I was still on the radio on the terrestrial station, I got invited to a symposium before, this goes back to when, before Jim Watson was mayor and he still pretended to be a conservative. Um, it was at uh, Talk Ottawa or something like that, and they started talking about putting. Um, they wanted to put uh, electronic throttles on on the uh, throttle regulators or speed regulators is the word I'm looking for on trucks. And their excuse wasn't safety; it was global warming. Yeah. And I had a cow. You're kidding. I am not kidding. I couldn't believe this. And so you've got ele you know what an elephant race is, of course. And for the uninitiated, yeah. an elephant race is when two trucks on throttle uh, with uh, controlled uh, engine speeds or ground speeds try to pass one another because, you know, you, they're never set exactly the same. So one guy's going a mile an hour faster than the other, and he doesn't want to slow down because time's money. So he pulls over in the other lane and yeah. takes 10 miles to get by him. That's called an elephant race. Yeah. Anyway, so that was the first encounter I had with this whole idea about the planet being more important than the people who live on it. Uh, on you know on a face-to-face -face basis, what kind of impact are environmental re regulations like cap and trade going to have on the trucking industry? It's going to be devastating for us. We lose all of our uh, all of our uh, tax benefits for off-road vehicles. They're, uh, they're, they've eliminated that. They put uh, they've really attacked diesel. There's no questions about that. So uh, currently, the first phase of um, of the cap and trade put about uh, four to five uh, cents per liter on a fuel tank or a per uh, uh, on the fuel and nick it's it's again it comes to the point where we've been at 83 dollars for five to six years and we keep in, we keep getting these uh fees and these uh levies on us and what what really uh what really uh scares me is Catherine when 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 the clock turned to 217 and the and the fuel and diesel shot up we're hearing reports from Kathleen Wynn. This isn't even a, this wasn't even an effect of cap and trade yet. So, you know, how high does it go, Nick? There was an invoice that was uh, bought, uh, brought to my attention by the Capital Voice, our friend uh, Guy Animal, great uh, great guy, and he uh, sent me a, a, an invoice from Alberta, and it was for coal, and it was uh, I forget how many times, but they ended up the levy. The, the the surcharge, the environmental surcharge on this load was $777. The load itself cost 900 and change. When you put HST, it almost doubled. So you know what I really want to understand, and I've asked a number of people, I would love to understand where that $777 goes. Where, where does that end up at the end of its journey to uh, prove 
that what they're saying is reinvested mm. in the climate. I think it's baloney. I think this climate change is baloney as well. And I'll go on the record as saying that because, you know, three or four or five years ago, it, it really wasn't the flavor until Al Gore started uh, uh, marching around and Suzuki started marching around, getting us all hysterical about the, uh, the environment. What cap and trade and all these fees are going to have, it's going to put a lot of people out of business, Nick. It's going to well, put a lot of people. And one other thing I don't understand is how the, uh, the, uh, the country has ripped up railroads. If we want to get these trucks and these dangerous goods off our highways, why are we ripping up railroads? That should be the mode of transportation to move most of these things through good parts of our country. I don't get it. I just I, somebody's got to understand what's going on. Well, the, the, because of the, I believe it's the public outcry over Lac Megantic that did a lot of damage. Although a lot of the railroad tracks had already been ripped up by then, <clears throat> but to, the idea yeah. of you know rebuilding a rail infrastructure is just not on because of that. Everybody's so terrified of these. Uh, let's face it. When's the last time before? And I'm not trivializing the tragedy at Lake Megantic. It certainly was tragic. But when was the last time before that you'd ever heard of anything like that happening in Canada? It just didn't happen. Very seldom. But you, yeah, but very seldom. But you're going to have uh, trucks that'll block the uh, enclosed both ways of the highways for three days, the 401 biggest corridor in, uh, in Canada. And yet, uh, you know, Nick... How many times have you looked beside you to your left, your right, saw a truck and what they're transporting, and it's, uh, you know, it's, wow, these are bombs that are on our highways that are that are intermixed with uh, families and uh, people just trying to uh, commute on the highways. It's, uh, I just don't get it. I, I, um, I don't know where we're going with all of this other than, um, you know, it's interesting, Nick. We pay a quarter of a million dollars for our dump trucks, and we're treated like we're pizza delivery guys where guys every day they're sitting there and you know this Nick they're sitting there at 4 o'clock in the night before hoping somebody calls them to hire their trucks and if they don't then they sit there and they don't work and you know uh, so what ha- what really has to happen and here's another problem in, in, uh, in our uh, in our city of Ottawa I was at Pitts yesterday in Ottawa and I couldn't believe how many Quebec truckers are romping around our province they well, this- come in here unchallenged. I was with a guy today, and he just bought a truck in, from Richie's Auctions in Montreal. As soon as he stepped off the lot, they pulled him over. The, the equivalent to the MTO in Quebec pulled him over. They could have given. They said we could have given you five thousand dollar fines and all of this stuff because he didn't have a couple of paperwork uh, incorrect. And I'm thinking, wow, these people run around in. Uh, and, and I was in court today, Nick. A whole bunch of Quebec trucks. They didn't have CVORs in Ontario or, or equivalents. They, could, they couldn't prove it. You know, when I took over the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association a number of years, there was 34 truckers from uh, trucking companies from uh, Quebec moving snow for the city of Ottawa. I turned around and find out 32 weren't even registered to work in the province, so no WSIB and such. No wonder these guys can come in and absolutely crush us with price. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to commission an accountant, an independent accountant, to look at an Ontario truck and a Quebec truck and find out what's expense to drive a uh, what the burden the Ontario government has put on an Ontario and what benefits the uh, Quebecer gets and we're going to find out that the Quebecer can come in here cheaper and cut our costs because our government has put us in a position where we can't even compete anymore against our, our neighbors uh, from Quebec who absolutely when we go over there we get harassed to, to 
uh, to death almost. It's now, pathetic. Do you know yeah. that? Uh, you, you go to Watson, you go to you, the mayor and such, and they don't do a thing. It's just I don't I don't get it. Well, yeah, yeah, you, you, I, I don't get it either. Do you know what? Excuse me, whether or not uh, a Quebec trucker play, pays a carbon tax on his fuel? Absolutely not. Okay, Absolutely so not, no. now I thought that was the answer. I wasn't you know, sure. Thing I, I heard today, Nick, that you can have twenty-five percent of your nuts. <laughs> well, that's you know what <laughs> uh, your your studs on your wheels. Okay, <laughs> they could be they could be seized or they could be they they could be missing, and 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 you've got forty-eight hours to fix them. I was so shocked to hear that. I had to ask the guy again. You mean to say, on if I have um, eight nuts? Or lugs around my lug nuts, and two yes. are missing, or two or whatever. I'm I, I've got 48 hours to fix that. I said, no wonder. And and hence these guys come in with that attitude in Ontario because our enforcement is so sporadic and it just it's more reactionary vis-a-vis uh, forward. Then these guys get to uh, run around our things uh, unsafe. There's a ton of unsafe uh, trucks in here. I called the MTO yesterday morning on a couple of Quebec trucks that didn't have tarps on their things, and I was told they were overloading. So where's our MTO? They're at the scaled Hawkesbury, uh, sitting there comfortable in the uh, in the scales that you probably get five trucks an hour coming through. They should be right there where their trucks are busy, working, checking these Quebecers that come in, breach the laws, uh, and uh, and start holding those guys accountable. Because I'm telling you, they got a free ride in the city. They're not as strictly uh, enforced as we are, and I don't care what anybody says. You know, it seems that they hardly ever get trucked, uh, touched, and we get just harassed. And we've got to, we've got to convince the uh, powers to be that uh, you know what, this is going to be equal. And I'm going to go to all the uh, big contractors uh, next week, Nick, and I'm going to absolutely encourage them to hire Ontario because Tomlinson, you know, Tomlinson's huge. Yep. They just lost a big sewer contract to a firm in Montreal. To a firm in Montreal, and here's Thomason, one of the biggest employers in Ottawa. They got more trucks uh, than uh, politicians in Ottawa, and yet they lose to somebody in Montreal. And we question with them how they can afford to come all that way with all the expenses and be just a little bit more. They're a little bit cheaper, but we're learning cheaper is not the best. A lot of these guys are putting cheap prices in. Uh, getting the job, they're really unqualified, not unlike what's happening on our highways for plowing, Nick, which you're aware of. Mm-hmm. They give contract to the lowest bidder that doesn't even have equipment, and then we find out the the, uh, the government's buying them equipment. They don't know what where the equipment went. They fine these people. They don't collect fines. It, it, it's so corrupt, Nick. Well, it re- in there to kick some butt for sure. Yeah, you got that right. Now, the reason I brought up the cost of fuel in Quebec was because when I was driving— I had 300 gallons of fuel that I carried on my tractor trailer. Yeah. And in those days, fuel was about 36 cents a liter. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you bought it at certain truck stops, they would give you back a six cent bonus in a cash back. You know, guys would use it for pocket money. Yeah. And uh, it would, <clears throat> but that was still, it would still cost me three, four hundred dollars to fill that truck. Uh, today, I shudder to think. At what it was today, because that was still my biggest expense back in the 90s when I was driving, yeah. was the cost of fuel. I was an owner-operator for three years, and, you know, fuel and tires and that kind of stuff and safety checks and, and all that stuff. I cannot imagine yeah. how these guys are making it, considering uh, oh. in a long-haul situation, I, uh, for a good, a good week for me, uh, was $1.30 a mile. 
uh, I don't I don't yeah. see these guys out there making a whole lot more than that now. No, it's going to cost you more than a thousand dollars to fill it up. What are you What are you What are you talking? You're talking big tanks of gallons of gas. Uh, uh, convert that four point two into a liters. You're You're paying big, 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 big dollars. It's huge. I've got guys that uh, you know. I I know companies that are, uh, you know, have big uh, gas bills that can't even pay the bill at the end of the day. I don't know how some of these uh, gas companies do it. Well, uh, how much they get? Uh, they're probably extending credit and extending credit and extending credit and hoping that things will get better. Because there's an old saying, when you yeah. owe the bank $1,000, you got a problem. But when you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank's got the problem. Yeah, no, no doubt. That's well said. <laughs> um, but where does it go from here, Nick? Where does it really go from here? We really have to sit down and, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, the governments are so uh, you know, infatuated with uh, revenue collecting right now and using us as revenue tools, you know, uh, I don't know if their their mandate is to discourage the independents to uh, you know go work for the cities. Because what what forty two percent of our uh, population works for some form of government. It's approaching. Yeah, it's in that range. And, and worse. Yeah, because you got teachers, you got uh, whatever, whatever, and uh, you know what do they want? Um, you know what do they want us to be, all become employees of uh, big super conglomerates? So, you know it takes the spirit of the entrepreneur away and the ability to take some risk for a good reward. And the benefit of uh, employing some of your neighbors, and, and that you know, small to medium-sized business is what the world should revolve around. But it just seems to be big government anymore. And uh, you, once you get in government, you get comfortable. And you know, we we hire these people in the government, and they come and harass us. Like, my goodness gracious, I just I don't get it. But no. What are you going to do to change it? Well, what, what there is an election coming. Uh, who knows what will happen after afterwards because we have uh, other political problems with leadership in this province, like the, the big three. Uh, there's not much difference between them. So unless we hear some real changes, it would be, you know what? It would be a great question for a Mr. Brown to talk about what he's going to ask him, yeah. what, he's, what he proposes to lighten the burden on the transportation industry. I would argue one of the single most vital industries within our economy. Nick, ask a politician what cap and trade is, and they'll look at you like you're uh, you're you got four eyes. Yeah, well, they have no clue what cap and trade is. This this minister Murray, the climate change, the guy is just the biggest like uh, hoaxer, you know. And then they believe their own uh, their, their own uh, game and uh, such. But you ask you ask even a Patrick Brown, what is cap and trade? They just look at you like uh, well. well they have no clue. It's just a tax grab. It's it. There's and again, if anybody wants to do the math, and I challenge anybody out there, where did that seven hundred and seventy-seven dollars of a levy go? I want to follow that just like right through the stream of where the end use to uh, go uh, protect the environment. Well, it goes, it goes into, into the general revenues and exactly. Yeah. So so and and then the spin that oh we're 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 we're, uh, we're uh, Sistering uh, with uh, California and Quebec. My goodness. You know what? How do we do that? When my first words out of my mouth are, there's two words that come out of my mouth when I hear that. Who cares? What do we care what California is doing? Yeah. They're a mess too. I love Trump. Or, I love Trump. <laughs> but he, he, you know, I, I was, I was, I, I, I Twitter a lot. And I was uh, on a feed with uh, Hillary Clinton was saying about uh, Trump uh, turning back the coal. And, uh, right. and then, uh, you know, the bleeding heart liberals are saying, oh, 
now we're going to have more uh, sickness and all of this crap. Well, let's get people working because that's what's making people sicker more is the stress of not being able to sustain and support their families. Now, there's a study that we worth uh, undertaking. Oh, it's it's, it's everybody's scrambling. Like, I, I was... You know, I, I make great money, but I work 12, 15 hours a day. I, you know, I would love to be able to retire. You know that I'm 55, but you know what? I have to work my bum off every single day. Well, Ron. It's, it's the chase. It's, uh, listen, I certainly, uh, I, I know that about you. There's no doubt about it. And anybody who spent more than five minutes around you knows that uh, you're probably one of the most energetic 55-year-olds they've ever met. Uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you my as pleasure, always. And drive safe and get home, yeah. uh, you know, and get get a little bit, get a little shut eye before your feet hit the ground again. Yes, and Nick, on behalf of the Greater Ottawa Truckers, it's a pleasure, and uh, we're proud to be able to uh, support your uh, your work you do with uh, commercials and such. And uh, you know, I hope to be on your station soon. And next time, I'll come right into the station, and we'll have uh, we'll have a good time versus sitting on a. I'm sitting in the middle of nowhere in Port Dover right here in the dark, and I got my doors locked and everything like that. You know how dangerous it is in Port Dover, right? Yeah, no doubt. Anywhere in this province anymore. You have a wonderful evening, and uh, thank you for uh, giving me a call and the opportunity to speak on behalf of uh, truckers, small business, and towning the government. All right. Thanks, Ron. appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, I just want to uh, thank Ron for that. That's uh, always a lot of uh, a treat to have him in. We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to go refill my coffee cup, and we'll be back with more right after that. So Nick is reloading and taking a much-needed break. Not that he needs one, but maybe it's a good thing. So if you want to fire him off an email, just uh, send it to nick at latenightcouncil.com. That's simple, huh? Nick at latenightcouncil.com. Or better yet, call now. Hey, I know he could talk forever, but you know what? If you're doing talk radio, you love the calls. 343-700-4390. That's 343-700-4390 for the Capital Region. And if you can't get through on that line or you live far, far, far away, like we're talking about Alaska, 1-844-562-4766. That's 1-844-562-4766. Now, our call service is automated. You won't be talking to a live person until you're live on air. Don't sweat it. Just follow the prompts and while you're on hold, and, and, and you'll be fine. does not exist without advertisers. So if you want to buy time, you contact either myself 
jc at latenightcouncil.com. Or you can contact Nick if you're more comfortable with him, and of course I certainly understand that. You can contact Nick at latenightcouncil.com. The ads are like really, really cheap. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna love them. Okay, we we've made them quite accessible. Feedback is always welcome. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And thanks for tuning in. Now back to Nick at Night. I guess that's my cue. All right. Now, there's all kinds of other things on the menu this evening. Um, again, thanks to Ron, my guest, Ron Barr. He's always a lot of fun to talk to. He's a very knowledgeable man. And when I said he was high energy, I wasn't kidding. Uh, the guy just goes and goes and goes. So I'm very glad that uh, he had some time for us this evening. The numbers, of course, are 343 4390 844-562-4766. If you want to join the conversation, we also can. you can also use uh, Facebook. You can send me a, a message on Facebook. You can send me an email to uh, nick at latenightcouncil.com, which means I should open my email just in case anybody does that. I'll be on top of things. Boy, that doesn't happen very often, does it? All right, now, uh, let's see. There's been uh, there's so much stuff in the news, you almost don't know where to begin. But um, we were talking about, uh, during our conversation with Ron, talking about uh, Obama resigning coal, uh, resigning a, a plan. Well, the headline goes this way. Touting coal industry, Trump dumps Obama's climate change plan. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Finally, some common sense. You know, folks, I've been saying for years, and I don't mind saying for years because it's been that long. Ever since this whole thing started, I knew the, uh, this idea about global warming was a bunch of nonsense or man-made global warming because what was the main argument? That carbon dioxide gas is pollution. Utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. It's plant food. Okay, well, in here, uh, let's see if I can find it. Do-do-do, uh, Trump accuses predators. Uh, let's see. Anyway, in this article, it's out of the Toronto, I think it's Toronto Sun, uh, Toronto Sun, Ottawa Sun, Saturday Ottawa Sun uh, today, I believe. Yes, today, and it's written by the Associated Press. Uh, one of his aides says uh, that the carbon emissions uh, are not pollution, they're plant food. Actually says almost verbatim what I've been saying for years. And when I read it, I went, oh, man, finally somebody gets it. You know, it's not just me wailing away out here. Because, so in other words, what he's done is he said this whole nonsense about banning coal is exactly that. I'm going to make coal an energy source again. He's going to put 75,000 people back to work. Now, coal is no longer the cheapest form of energy, but it's certainly one of them and should be part of the mix. He's got, you know, there's natural gas from fracking. There's all kinds of, we are sitting on so much energy. The fossil fuel, and fossil fuel energy, I think fossil fuel gets a real bum rap. Uh, under this, you know, the, the enviro wackos out there who think we shouldn't burn anything e anywhere ever. Um, you know, they, if you had a campfire, they'd come with water and put it out and then blame you for the steam, you know, screaming about, um, screaming about pollution. They don't have a clue what they're talking about, but boy, are they willing to impose it on others. So Trump came out and just basically said, enough of this. 
Uh, let me just share this with with you. Trump has called global warming a hoax invented by the Chinese. Well, okay. <laughs> I don't know if it's a communist plot, all right? This thing about communism lately, I don't know. But anyway, and, and has been repeatedly criticized, repeatedly criticized the power plant rule as an attack on American workers and the struggling U.S. coal industry. In addition to pulling back from the clean power plan, the administration will also lift a 14-month-old moratorium on new coal leases on federal lands. The one thing, look, whether you, under, whether you like Mr. Trump or not, the whole point is he is fulfilling his promises. He said he was going to do this on the campaign trail. Here he is doing it. He's gotten more done in the two months that he's been in office than Obama did in eight years certainly on a constructive point of view. So anyway, you've got that. Now, there is another article uh, today out of uh, another sun. This one's out of Toronto. It's written by Tarek Fada. If you haven't read this, you need to. This is all about uh, Bill, uh, not Bill, Motion 103. And I'm making a distinction because a, a motion's not a bill. Now, I get the slippery slope. I believe it's part of the slippery slope argument where it will soon become law. Mm -hmm. But he asks some important question, uh, important um, uh, points. He raises some very important points and makes some con contrast between Pakistan and the way they impose their version of 103 to what will happen here. So I'm going to jump. I'm going to go beyond that a little bit and jump in here. On March 24, 2017, an anti-terrorism court in Pakistan placed three online bloggers in custody of a security agency so they could be investigated and interrogated on blasphemy charges resulting from what M103 what would define as Islamophobic comments on social media. Pakistan, Pakistan's anti-blasphemy laws include a maximum sentence of imprisonment for life for insulting the Koran. The punishment for insulting the Prophet Muhammad can be the death penalty, although it's never been imposed by a court. At times, however, the interpretation of what constitutes an insult to the Koran or Muhammad in Pakistan is not decided by the court, but in the hands of street mobs, zealots, and any Muslim who feels offended by what someone else has said or done. Just as Islamophobia, now here's where I really want you to pay attention, remains undefined in the M103 motion passed in the Parliament of Canada, what constitutes an act of insulting the Koran in Pakistan is often arbitrary. Friends and family of the three accused Pakistani have reached out to journalists and human rights activists in Canada and the West for help. All right, so he goes on. Uh, he has a couple of questions for the MP who introduced this motion, Khalid, uh, Khalid uh, Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship, um, well, actually, there's three here. Um, MP Khalid, Minister of Immigration, Refugees, Citizenship, Ahmed Hussein, and Pri Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And he wants to know, am I indulging in Islamophobia if I publicly choose to disassociate myself fo from following the, verses, the following two verses of the Quran? Now, remember, Tarek Fatah is a Muslim. Okay? So he's asking, if I distance myself, if I say that's not part of what I believe, I'm... I'm distancing myself from this part of the Quran, and he gives two verse two verses. The Quran five, uh, well, we call it verse five, chapter thirty or chapter five, verse thirty-three. 
The punishment of those who wage war against Allah and his messenger and strive to make mischief in the land is only this, that they should be murdered or crucified or their hands and their feet should be cut off on opposite sides or they should be imprisoned. This shall be a disgrace for them in this world and the hereafter they shall have a grievous chastisement. And the second verse reads this way, I will cast terror into the hearts of those who disbelieve. Therefore, strike off their heads and strike off every t fingertip of them. So here's the question. So, am I an Islamophobe for discarding these passages in the Quran as in inapplicable today, MP Khalid? What punishment do I deserve, uh, Minister Hussein? And as for you, Prime Minister Trudeau, well, never mind. But he asked a very good question. You know, if, if Islamophobia is as undefined as it is in this motion, okay, what's the punishment? Do we follow the Quranic punishment as laid out in the Quran itself? Is that what we're supposed to do? And he's a Muslim. Remember that. He's a Muslim. He's criticizing his own religion. It's one of the reasons I have so much respect for the guy, because he's, he's taking a heck of a risk. He's taking a heck of a risk because um, to do that in many corners of the world is a death sentence. So the fact that he's doing it so publicly here in Canada, you know, knowing that uh, there are people in Canada who would kill him for this, I think it's, it's a tremendous act of courage. But it's a very valid question. If I'm Islamophobic, what's my punishment? If you're going to apply the Canadian um, criminal code, where would it fall? What punishment would you, you know, would you put years in jail, fine, public service? What would you do? I think he asked some very, very good questions. You need to read that, uh, that article. Again, it's in Toronto Sun today, so go online and find it or go to my Facebook page. I have it posted there. And just read it and see what you, what you come up with at the end because I know I, I have no idea. It's just, it's, I, I still think that they've got the term wrong. And rather than calling things like this Islamophobia, they should be called Islamophilia. Anyone who feels offended by any slight or um, insult, perceived insult, towards the Quran or to the Prophet Muhammad demonstrates, if, if they get offended by that, demonstrates an irrational love of, of Islam and of Muhammad. That's Islamophilia. That's what it should be. And a phobia is a mental illness because you have, uh, or, or, you know, if you have a, a phobia is an irrational fear, right? So if you have arachnophobia, you're, you have an irrational, uncontrollable fear of spiders. Okay, hydrophobia, an irrational fear of water. And oh my God, I'm falling to my death phobia. You know, the fear of falling because I don't know what the medical term is. But those kinds of things... Um, are not considered crimes. They're not considered, you know, there's no room for the justice system in it. We, if somebody has, uh, let's say, an irrational fear of spiders, like some people in my house, uh, you know, if it's severe enough, you get them mental help. You, know, you, you get them professional help. You don't put them in jail. You don't cut off their hands and feet. It just, there's so much wrong with this whole thing. Okay, now, there's another story here. And it's uh, the one out of Montreal about the jihadi uh, who ended up working on, a, on an airport. And one of them, uh, ISIS member, I should say, or someone who supports ISIS, uh, is 
was uh, working at, um, well, actually he still is, um, working at the Montreal airport. And this is a guy who is, uh, he's, let me just start. The, investi the investigation found that one employee with airport security clearance reportedly shared Islamic State propaganda videos, including graphic imagery of torture and murder, through social media accounts. Another individual, according to the report, suggested that the November 2015 Paris massacre carried out by the Islamic State needed to be replicated. One of the radicalized employees reportedly had direct access to runways and aircraft at Montreal's airport. The employee an employee allegedly had a great deal of knowledge and documentation about military caliber assault weapons. And yet, according to the report, this individual still works at the airport and has simply been moved, moved to a new post away from the runways and airplanes. Aeroports de Montreal, the company that manages the airport, could not be immediately reached for comment by Post Media Tuesday. I believe this is written by Brian Lilly, is it not? Candace Malcolm, sorry. Anyway... <sighs> Is it possible that these people have been have come into the country illegally, obtained false documents, and now present those documents to um, uh, you know to this company looking for work and have landed work, and now they're in very sensitive positions? I mean, you know, the idea of what a man could do to an airplane while it's sitting on a runway at a major international airport, given the opportunity is chilling. It really is. You don't need to paint, I don't want to try to paint any particular scenario, but you can just let your imagination kind of run wild a little bit, and it wouldn't take much to do some very serious damage, and yet this guy um, is still working there. Now, on top of that, we have this. Canadians fed up with being asylum seekers patsies. Now, I was reading uh, on Lowell Green's post on Facebook the other yesterday or today that they're now starting down at Cornwall and in the Thousand Islands and in that stretch, you know, that Quebec, Ontario region of the St. Lawrence Seaway, um, they're starting to smuggle uh, asylum seekers, illegal immigrants is what they really are, across the river uh, from the states into Canada. And they've already had a couple of people drown. And they're just lining up like cattle to run them across the border. You know, get in the boat, we'll get you over there, uh, the way that goes. Well, that policy, uh, this open arms, uh, you know, um, uh, kissy-huggy policy is wearing mighty thin with a lot of Canadians. As reluctant spring eventually kicks out the last vestiges of winter, the number of asylum seekers entering Canada illegally from the United States will ramp up considerably. No kidding. When it gets warmer, I mean, they had, what was the number in the article, 1,200? Uh, I believe it was 1,200 people crossed the border between January and February when it was minus 20, 30, and 40. And these people were, you know, uh, you know, they come from southern climates, warm, warm countries, and all of a sudden they're in the depths of a Canadian winter struggling across the border into Manitoba, Quebec, and who, who knows where else. You know, just barely, some of them almost freezing to death. Well, when it becomes nothing but a stroll across an open field in the summertime, how many will come? So that's part of it, and that's what they're driving at here. Only a fool or the Trudeau liberals who thus far appear to lack any plan would think otherwise. Now, the point I want to make in this, and this is where, this is when you have a government that simply won't listen, has its own agenda, and doesn't care about the populace. 
A new Ipsos Reid poll Wednesday commissioned by Global News shows over 90% of Canadians believe the Liberals' approach to dealing with asylum seekers is in dire need of change. Let me ask you a question. And I mean this seriously. When was the last time Canadians agreed 90% of us, 9 out of 10, you, get, you put 100 people in a room and 90 are going to agree on anything? You can't even get them all to agree that the Leafs are Canada's team. That's obvious, but you still have your doubters out there, okay? I'm being a little silly, but the point I'm making is no, nobody in Canada, you, you can't find consensus this broad anywhere except here, that there's something wrong. So 9 out of 10 people are telling the government we cannot continue to do this. We cannot continue to, to just have the people uh, cross the border as long as they don't cross at a fixed, uh, at a fixed uh, port of entry, like if they crossed at Detroit, uh, the tunnel at Detroit, between Windsor and Detroit, they'd have to be turned back. If they, cro if they crossed at, um, uh, I don't know, um, the Thousand Islands, okay, or if they crossed at Buffalo, they would be turned back. But any point in between where it's not a fixed crossing, all they have to do is walk across and they have to be accepted. There's a loophole in the treaty that the, ha the countries have amongst themselves. And they know about this loophole and they're obviously exploiting it. This is a very serious problem because when you think about it, and look, a lot of those people are very desperate. They come from very desperate situations and want nothing more than a better lives for themselves and their families. Nobody's denying that, least of all me. But the problem is, there are some of them. Now, we don't know how many. Some of them are coming here with very nefarious intent. And until we can figure out how to sort that out, how are we going to keep these people out who intend us great harm? Even if you had a thousand people crossing the border and only five had those intentions. If we don't know which of the other 995 people are, are you know, um, legitimate people, and I don't want to say legitimate, they're illegal if they cross the border without permission. They're, they're still criminals, they're still illegal, but they're not terrorists. If we can't sort the sheep from the wolves, how are we going to prevent more situations like what we see going on in Europe? You know, it's just... I don't understand this kind of a mindset. And how people put up with it, I haven't got the foggiest idea. All right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more with the Nick and Night Show right after this.
for se- for 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. Okay, welcome back to the Nick and Night Show, folks. I want to play you a clip. It's only 19 seconds long, but it's of uh, the progressive conservative leader, Patrick Brown, and he has a, um, he, he's got 19 seconds he wants to talk just to you. So I want you to listen to this. Let me make sure everything's ready to go. Here we go. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter who you love. It doesn't matter if you belong to a union. It doesn't matter how much you make. It doesn't matter where you worship. You have a home in the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. All right, so my question to that is, do you believe him? I don't. Because, actually, I do. There's just one group that isn't welcome. He's not being honest with us. Because it does matter. If you're a social conservative, there is no room for you in the Conservative Party of Ontario. If you are a landowner, if you are somebody who believes in the, in the, in the tradition and the fundamental principle of merit, there is no room for you in the Conservative Party under Patrick Brown. That is one of the most egregious commercials I've ever heard because he doesn't mean it. He does not mean it, because if he did, he wouldn't have thrown 30% of his base under the bus, would he? So I want to know what you think. 5-2, no, 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 you can also send me a message at Facebook. I'm keeping that open so that uh, if somebody wants to private message me or anything along that line, we can certainly do it. Um, one way or the other, there's all, you can also call. Imagine that. You could call 343-700-4390. And you could talk to me about what you think. Because this kind of stuff, you know, it's funny because when I posted this, there's always going to be one or two people who don't get it. They don't understand they say, one of the comments was, oh, there goes the conservatives eating each other alive again. You know, no wonder the liberals keep winning. No, no, you don't get it. Patrick Brown is not a, is not a conservative. Just because he happens to wear a blue tie, he doesn't make him a conservative. I challenge you. If you think that way, I have a challenge for you. Call me at 343-700-4390 and tell me 
what is the biggest, what is the big difference between Patrick Brown and Kathleen Wynne? What policy does he have? What plan does he have that is different enough from what the liberals now offer that you would vote for them? Because I don't care what color the flag is. What I care about is what kind of policies do you have in place? Traditionally, I vote conservative because they have policies that I think are far more closely aligned to the way I see the world than the other parties do. In other words, they have what I call common sense policies. Lower, smaller government, lower taxes, less interference in your daily life, that kind of thing. Okay, and merit. I know I beat that like a dead horse, but merit. That's why you don't need a, multi, a multi-lettered organization. The LGBTQ, RxMVP, whatever the heck the, the, the latest version of that is. We don't need that in the Conservative Party because we already include people who fit that bill through merit. Because we don't care who you sleep with. If you're the best man or woman for the job, you should get it, bar none. That's the only standard we apply. Well, not in Patrick Brown's world. He only wants progressives who only care about that as long as you agree with them. There's no room for polite dissension and discussion of ideas. It has to be one way or the highway. That's just the only way it is. In other words, there's no difference between the three, the big three. The NDP, at least the NDP, you can say this much, they're honest. You know where they're coming from. You might not like that. You might not like the direction they want to take the province in. But is there any arguing with it? Well, yeah, there is. But, I mean, at least you understand where it's coming from. You, you know where their point of view comes from. And at least you can expect them, respect them for that much. But this nonsense, you have a home in the progressive conservative party, as long as you're not one of those nasty socialist right-wingers. We don't want no right-wingers in here. We don't want no, no people who believe in smaller government. We don't want anybody asking me about what my plan is to lower hydro or the cost of it. You know, I support the carbon tax. We're going to make it. Let me ask you something. When it comes to this whole nonsense about carbon tax, his plan is to make it car, carbon neutral. Yeah, carbon neutral. Revenue neutral. If you have a revenue neutral tax which takes money from the economy, passes through the government, and gives it back to the economy. What's the point of the tax? If you're just going to take it with one hand and give it back with another, what's the point? Why not avoid imposing more burden on the taxpayer in the first place? You know, instead of spending like a drunken sailor, so you have to go after people like farmers and truckers and people who work in the construction industry and people who do God knows how many a wide variety of things, pizza delivery drivers, anybody who's out there trying to make a decent living in the private sector, the government considers a bottomless pit for a cash cow. And they keep dipping in and dipping in and dipping in. And when they poke through the bottom and people start having to choose between heating and eating, all of a sudden, they act surprised. Oh, well, we must give them relief. We must, we must cut their hydro bill by 25%, even though we're the ones who raised it by 150. Is, am I the only one that thinks this is absolutely insane? Just, 
You know, there's days I run out of words. So 343-700-4390, if you've got some words of your own you want to share, by all means, help me with that. Because this, this thing about Patrick Brown is enough. It, it really bothers me because I know how absolute full of nonsense it is. There's nothing in that. I mean, look. You've got the liberals. Think about the, te- think about the politics of this. The biggest group of disenfranchised people out there in the province are not the progressives. They're not the ones. They get courted all the time by the NDP, by the liberals, and by now the conservatives. They're the only ones that anybody that these parties want to hear from. And yet they do not make up the largest single block of voters in the province. But nobody wants to say to people who are a little more conservative in their world outlook, what is it you want? Because you live here too. You know, how can we make you feel at home within this party? When's the last time anybody ever called you from a party and said, what is your view? When's the last time a leader got up and said, you know, I think that the... uh, um, the landowners and uh, the people, the, the right-to-life people and, the, and, and people who just want smaller government, you know, don't consider themselves radicals in any sense. They just want to keep more of their own money. They don't want programs out there. They don't want, they want in their public school systems a school system that is secular. They don't want Muslim prayer rooms. They don't want this. They don't want that. They just want to get through their day without having the government interfering with the things that they're going to do. Or want to do. They don't want them crushing their dreams. That call doesn't happen. That appeal hasn't happened in years. And the last time it did happen, Mr. Brown said it was a bad idea. And he regretted doing it. I don't know. I just... Folks, I don't know what to tell you. It's enough. It just drives you crazy. Now... There is. Where are you? Well, as you're well away, oh, yes, I know what I was going to tell you about. Last week, when was that? Uh, Let me scroll back a little bit. Oh, a little further down. Here we go. Yes, I posted this on the 27th of March. That's a mere two days ago. Seems like a a week ago. So the first of the week. I had a story up for over a week, and the headline, it comes from the National Post, called Maxine Bernier calls Kevin O'Leary a loser for suggesting widespread vote rigging in Tory, Tory leadership race. That's the headline. And it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good uh, indicator of what's in the story. I had that posted for, oh, I don't know. The original story came out a week before, so three or four days anyway. And I got up one morning, and I went to Facebook, as I usually do, just to see what's going on in the world. And all of a sudden, I went to log in, and it said, I'm banned. What do you mean, I'm banned? I'm banned. I can't, I can't, I can go and look at Facebook, but I can't post anything. I can't private message anything. I'm just sitting in the bleachers, man. One minute, I'm, you know, I'm in the game, and the next minute, I'm in the bleachers. I'm not even on the bench. I'm in the be- I'm in the bleachers. I don't even get a hot dog and a warm beer. 
they'd ban me. Why? Because I posted that story and somebody complained. Now, you see, if it had been something that was gratuitous, if it had been something that was overtly and gratuitous can take on a lot of meanings. You know, I wasn't posting porn. I wasn't posting um, uh, inflammatory stuff. I wasn't posting stuff that uh, encouraged violence. I wasn't, you know, calling for the assassination of some political leader. I wasn't doing anything like that. I just posted a story that was already out there. It was in the hands of every, every single major news outlet in this country had the story. That's where I got it. The Globe had it. CBC had it. CTV had it. The National Post had it. I'm sure all the stars in the country and the suns in the country had it. Every major news outlet in this country had that story. So why did I get banned for posting it? So there's something in train, when you train a horse, there's something called opposition reflex. So if you were to walk up, a up to a horse and just push on its hip, it will actually lean into you. It won't step away. It'll lean into you. That's called opposition reflex. And the mentality goes like this. Oh, you think you're going to push me, huh? And they just throw their weight against you. And the next thing you know, you're the one walking backwards because the horse weighs a lot more than you do. Well, that's the way I kind of react. So what I did was I took the story, and when my 24-hour... Um, time in purgatory was over, I wrote the following. I'm going to post a story and I'm hoping you will post it on your wall and share it far and wide. I was banned for 24 hours for putting this story up a week ago and I want to let whoever wrote, whoever complained know that trying to silence someone they don't agree with by complaining to a faceless organization that offers no right of rebuttal is not going to work. In fact, it will only make things worse. Well, 26 people agreed with me. They shared it over 20, 26 times it got shared. And there were some pretty interesting uh, uh, comments that followed that. But I think that's the only way to react. That's the only way to respond to this kind of stuff. Is when somebody tries to shut you down. Because what, what sin did I commit? What did I do wrong? Why would anybody ban me? What that tells me, there's a couple things that it tells me. First of all, and I'm not blowing my own horn here by any stretch, but I've got almost 2,000 friends, and there's plenty of people who have a lot more friends than I do on Facebook. It's not about that, but there's about 2,000 of them, and somebody, and there's also a lot of people will go to my web page, or my Facebook page, and have a look, even though they're not friends. They just people want to see what's, what I've posted this week. And somebody, either from that group of uh, uh, followers, if you want to call them that, a uh, group of friends, or somebody who had just cruised through the page, saw it, and decided they were going to either teach me a lesson or, you know, didn't want that story. And I, I can't imagine what their thinking was, but they complained, and, and Facebook responded with a, you're a bad boy, and we're going to shut you down for 24 hours. So I came back, and I said, fine, you try that. Here's what's going to happen. And now it's on 27 walls because it's up, still up on mine. But that kind of stuff bothers me because it's not like I had done anything wrong. It's not like I had said anything that was, you know, I wasn't trying to burn down Parliament Hill. And yet this was the reaction. Somebody out there didn't like the fact that I had posted this story. And what was the story about? It was about, uh, well, I read you the headline. 
you know, the, the whole idea that Maxime Bernier calls Kevin O'Leary a loser. Oh, you know, this reminds me of a, and I posted this clip if you want to watch the, the uh, clip. It's on Facebook. Uh, but I, I just happened to catch a comedian I'd never heard of before, never seen before. But he talked about the ridiculousness of political correctness. And one of the comments he made was, uh, so, you know, why do we have to have politically correct laws? Well, in case somebody gets offended. And he said, so what? So what if somebody gets offended? Now, he, he's making a joke out of it, and he's getting a good laugh out of it, too. But his main point was, who cares if somebody gets offended? What happens? Nothing. If you get offended, if, if you say something to me and I get offended, what, what happens to me because of me feeling offended? I get offended, but that's it. You know, as he put it, Oh, somebody said something bad about the Lord and I got offended. When I woke up in the morning, I had leprosy. <laughs> Nothing happens. Why are we all worried about when somebody else gets offended? Since when is, where is there a right written that thou shalt not cause offense? Now, I don't think you should go around poking people with a stick to intentionally be offensive. I just don't, it doesn't, there's, we're so thin-skinned. This is why we call this generation the snowflake generation. There was a story last week about um, uh, there was either a reserve unit, there was a military unit in Toronto who was practicing urban warfare. And they didn't bother to, to tell the population, the local population, in Toronto that there were going to be troops walking the streets and doing an exercise, okay? And you would not believe, oh my God. One lady they interviewed, one of the first people they interviewed, I wish I had the clip because I'd play it for you. But they, uh, they talked to one lady and she said, and I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the exact quote, but they even had guns like you'd see in Afghanistan. I was terrified terrified you realize the Can they call it the Canadian armed forces right and that the reason they call them armed is because they are armed and that they carry rifles and pistols they use artillery they have tanks they have warships and fighter planes and all this stuff that's what a military uses those are its tools so when you see a soldier on an exercise practicing urban warfare, there's a very good chance he will have a rifle with him. So why are you surprised? And why would you be worried about a Canadian soldier? See that red flag on his shoulder? You know the one with red maple leaf? Red, white, and the red maple leaf in the middle of the white background? That's the Canadian flag. It's on his shoulder. That means he's a Canadian soldier. Why would you be worried about that? You'd have thought we were being invaded by Mar Martians. People just had, and the, I, I can still remember the, um, oh, the talking bimbo head. The, she was um, a reporter. And she was saying, maybe uh, in, in situations like this in the future, the military will do a better job of letting people know there's a military exercise going on. Ah, oh, for crying out loud. What a bunch of ninnies we are. I mean, absolute babies. 
babies. We don't know the first thing. You know, I'll bet you if you had asked that lady, the one that was complaining about the guns, do, what, what, what do you think the Canadian military, when they send the infantry over to Afghanistan, do you think they leave their weapons there so they'll have them there when they go back? Is that how you think it works? Like, do you have any clue at all how the military works? Just absolute snowflakes. It's the best description of these people I can think of. All right. Let me take a little break. When we come back, we'll have more. General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area, and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better Eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. Okay, just on, under the heading, just when you think you've heard it all, let's lighten this up a little bit. <laughs> you know, some days I think it's better if people were just stay in bed. It just, <laughs> you're not going to believe this. Now this also, most of the stuff I talk about is, is posted on my Facebook page. So if you want to go and have a look at it and read the whole story for yourself, I always try to make sure that that's available um, because, you know, I like, I like it when people can uh, make sure that I'm keeping it in context and that you get the, the, the correct interpretation. And you can do that by reading the story yourself in, in its entirety rather than just a few paragraphs that I choose to read. All right. Anyway, <laughs> this, okay. I, I, oh. <laughs> All right. I'm trying to keep a straight face here. I don't know if I can get through this. Stolen gun falls from inmate's body cavity during search at North Alabama Jail. Right, this is a male inmate, so it kind of limits the body cavities you could be talking about. So, <laughs> okay, it's not yet clear whether the owner wants it. <laughs> it's not yet clear whether the owner wants it back. I don't know that I would either. 
It's not yet clear whether the owner wants it back, but Limestone County authorities recovered a stolen gun when it fell from an inmate's body cavity during his search at the jail. Okay, this guy must have an invisible L branded in the middle of his forehead. Okay, now, Jesse O'Neill Roberts, who is 23 years old, of Elkmont, was being booked into the Limestone County Jail on a misdemeanor charge of public intoxication when the weapon fell from his body. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, now that was Stephen Young speaking, and he goes on. He says, I immediately considered that the, that he had defecated on himself <laughs> before noticing a familiar shape in the form of a pistol in his boxers. Roberts was arrested after midnight when deputies responded to a call about a prowler on Eston, on Eston Lane. The caller found Roberts, Roberts around his garage and held the suspect at gunpoint until deputies arrived. Deputy Chad Harbin found Roberts, who was showing signs of impairment. No, you think? <laughs> I would really find this hilarious if the guy had chosen to do this sober. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so when they arrived at the jail, the corrections officer noticed Roberts appeared to be walking funny. <laughs> uh, they're going to be calling this kid Bang Butt for a long time. <laughs> While being searched, Roberts stumbled and the pistol fell from his body cavity. <laughs> the weapon, which was reported stolen from Florence, was not loaded. Oh my God. Well, at least he was that smart. <laughs> All right. It's a Jimenez 38 caliber pistol valued at 100 bucks. Okay. Now they show a picture of this thing. It is small. I, I but <laughs> I've heard of concealed weapons before, but that is absolutely Oh my god. All right. Anyway, uh when they arrived at jail, oh yeah, we did that. Okay. Now. So, because he was so brilliant, He went from a minor charge of public intoxication. Now he is also charged with first degree prom promoting prison contraband, carrying, carrying, carrying the ultimate in concealed weapons. <laughs> well, I'm adding that. Carrying concealed weapon without a permit. Can you imagine going down to get a permit for that? <laughs> you need a concealed permit. You need a holster for that? No, I got it. I got it. We good. Don't you worry, son. I I I figured this one out. I got this one. I, 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 you got any more gin? <laughs> Fourth degree receiving stolen property. <laughs> Bail is set at seventy two hundred and fifty bucks. <laughs> Asked about the air incident, Sheriff Mike Blakely said, "Well, it happens." It's not yet clear whether the owner wants the gun back or not. <laughs> okay. Look. <laughs> you know what the worst part of this is? He's only 20... How old did he say he was? 23. 23. So there's a very good chance he might still be living at home. 
can you imagine him going home and explaining this? Um, uh, mama, um, uh, 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 I'm down here at, at the courthouse. Can you bring me uh, uh, $725? They want 10% of the bail. Son, what did you do? Uh, um, uh, uh, well, Mama, I'd rather not say. Uh, but, 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 boy, wait, what, what did you do? <laughs> what kind of thing did you do to get you in trouble? <laughs> you did what? <laughs> Hell, I'll bring you that money. You can rot. <laughs> you ain't no son of mine. <laughs> okay, I'm having way too much fun with this, but I can't help it. <laughs> okay, all right. All right, that's enough fun and frivolity. Hey, Clyde, I know where you can get a real deal on the pistol. <laughs> you might want to boil it for a little while first, though. Oh, my God. All right, now. Oh, you know, this is one of the things that makes this so much fun. It really does, because I tell you what. Can you... <laughs> Where else can you go and have this as part of your routine? The ability to share with all kinds of other people stories that you can hardly get through because they're just so funny. Now, go staying with firearm stories, but getting a lot more serious. Brian Lilly did write a piece, and I, that's why I kept thinking of him all night. And um, he wrote a piece in The Sun, and... He's calling for the Canadian Medical uh, CMAJ, uh, Canadian Medical, I can never remember what the last, uh, Association Journal, that's it, uh, wrote um, <clears throat> about firearms deaths, now or firearms and the injuries they cause. Okay, now, he talks about the paper and how he says it should be retracted and apologized for because of the kind of information it contains is a long way from being accurate or even useful. Okay, let's start here. The paper muddies the water between what a child is and what an adult is when continue counting injuries, including injuries from paintball guns, which, whatever you think of them, are not firearms by any legal or common sense definition. It includes air pistols, too, like air air rifles, which are not firearms either. And the way to know whether or not something that looks like a firearm actually is, is if it makes fire when you pull the trigger. Like if you have a brass casing with a bullet on the end and a primer on one end and a primer on the other, and when the hammer falls on the primer, it sets off a chemical reaction inside the chamber. Uh, the powder in it burns, there go the word fire, and it throws the bullet down the barrel. Anything else, whether, be, whether that projectile is project, projected by compressed air, either through carbon dioxide gas in a cylinder or you know, a spring-loaded uh, thing with a, an air rifle, those are not firearms. A slingshot is not a firearm. A bow and arrow is not a firearm. And you would think that the, uh, the Canadian Medical Association would know that. So they're, they're skewing the numbers here. They're skewing, because the whole idea is there is a child injured every day in this province by a firearm, which is absolutely utter nonsense. Um, the only way, you have to reach that conclusion by stretching and twisting the, 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 the figures to make them fit that statement. So they, they blur the eyes, because you wouldn't think of a 24-year-old as a child. They're old enough to drink, drive, vote, fight for the country, 
uh, even run for office. They're not children. I mean, they may act like children. Mentally, they might be children. But from a legal standpoint, they are an adult. So, <clears throat> okay. Uh, in fact, for this study, authors only broke down age by splitting the subjects into two categories, under 15 and 15 to 24. Most of the injuries were in the 15 to 24 category, and I don't know that he actually says it in here, but I have a feeling the vast majority of them were males. Just a thought. Okay. Given that 7 out of 10 <coughs> years in that cohort are 18 to 24, I'm willing to bet most of the injured of the study children were youth uh, and youth were actually adults. And again, I agree with them there. There is no sloppy definition of there is their sloppy definition of firearm. Despite what authors may think, a paintball gun is not a firearm, neither is a BB gun or an airsoft pistol. But they are included in the study as a firearm. When I asked for a breakdown between real guns and paintball guns and the like, I was told in, that information was not available. So the question becomes, why would the CMAJ put this out? Well, for one thing, they, they don't like any kind of weapon at all. Now look, in a way I almost understand that. You're talking about doctors, people who go around fixing people when they get hurt, or trying to, doing their best, and I'm not knocking doctors. I have a great family doctor, I know, I have several family friends who are doctors. Uh, most of them have a lot more common sense than to think that an air, air rifle or an airsoft pistol or something like that is a firearm, they know better than that. Uh, some of them have firearms that they own themselves. So what would be the agenda of the, CMA, of the CMA other than to try to uh, come up with numbers they can point to later and say, look at this study. You know, it's a great study. It shows us how dangerous these things are. But I did a little research. <clears throat> and firearms, injuries and death by firearms, is a very tiny fraction of the way that children are injured in this, in this country. The vast majority of it is automobiles, um, you know, and these are all accidental situations, drownings, the scaldings, things like that. You know, the, the, the normal risks that all children face, well, we all face to some degree, but when you're young and you're foolish and you do silly things, or when you're even younger and you, you just don't know any better, um, that's just life. There is always going to be kinds of, of, of uh, these kinds of problems. So they've come up with this absolutely ridiculous uh, uh, statement, and I think Brian, by the end of the article, he's calling for them to repeal, uh, to pull back on the, uh, like retract the, the study and apologize for it. But he uh, <clears throat> talked to Dr. Kelsall, who is the head of the CMA, and uh, Dr. Diane Kelsall, editor-in-chief of the magazine, I should say, of the journal, and she told him by email that she stood by her decision to publish the piece and called the organization behind it world-class research institutions. <sighs> yeah, well, they may be, but they sure screwed this one up. So I just thought I'd bring that to your attention. Even sometimes highly respected organizations like the Canadian Medical Association, and by no means am I trashing the uh, professionalism of that organization, but you have to be careful. Hidden agendas or agendas can drive even some of the best organizations to produce some really, really bad stuff. And this is one of them because there's no way that there is a child injured in this province every single day by a real firearm. It just doesn't. I'm not saying, let me, before I say that, 
It's not that it never happens, but it happens so seldom. And as I say that, there was a, a story in the sun today. I didn't read it, but there was a story in the sun today about a brother and sister, one killing the other over a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But that's, that's, you know, that's the first one of those kinds of stories we've heard in a very, very long time, proving that it's very, very rare. So we don't need any more gun laws. What we need is some common sense around the issues. You know what I would do if I was Minister of Education? And I know people are going to scoff and laugh, but I would make a, a mandatory firearm safe hand, safety course, uh, make it mandatory for graduation from high school. You don't graduate high school until you learn about firearms. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because what's people's most common source of information about firearms? Hollywood. They watch TV and they see these things being used like, you know, uh, you watch <clears throat> any series you want, um, whether it's uh, home, home or, uh, Homeland or whether... I'm just picking some out of the air here. Um, you know, um, not suits. That didn't have one, many firearms in it. But if you look at some of the um, cop shows or, you know, they're, they're, they're drawing their pistols more in an episode than most policemen pull them in a whole career. So it's just... Hollywood is the worst possible place to get information about firearms. So to counter that, so that people really understand what these things are, what they can do, and more importantly, what they can't do, how to tell them apart, you know, toy from the real thing, it would absolutely be mandatory. You wouldn't be able to graduate high school until you have spent uh, two days learning about firearms, how they work, what makes them work, and what safe handling looks like and why what Hollywood shows you is not real. It's Hollywood. That is not responsible firearms ownership or use. But of course, that's going to fall on deaf ears. That'll never happen, and I'm under no illusions that it would. Happens around my house, though. <clears throat> anyway, so I just thought I'd bring that to your attention. Okay, um, you know, what? where are we with the clock? I have, my daughter introduced me to a piece of music uh, <clears throat> today, and I thought it was, <laughs> I got to admit, it was interesting. It, it's funny. Um, let me see if I can find it. It's right here. Okay, I'm, this runs about three minutes, I guess, and it's called Crawl Out Through the Fallout. It's a novelty song by Sheldon Allman, but I think I'm going to play it for you just because it's just so different. I guess the it's the best, best way to put it. Maybe some of you have heard this before. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. I know until tonight. I hadn't heard it before. And I thought it was worthy of my audience. So let me uh, cue this up. i got to turn that on and press this here button right here, and we'll be here. You, you give this a listen. through the fallout baby when they drop that bomb crawl out through the fallout with the greatest of aplomb when your white count's getting higher hurry don't delay i'll hold you close and kiss those radiation burns away crawl out through the fallout baby to my loving arms 
about your hero when you're at ground zero and crawl out to the fallout back to me. Crawl out to the fallout, baby. You know what I mean. Crawl out through the fallout, cause they said this bomb was clean. If you cannot find the way, just listen for my song. I'll love you all your life, although that may not be too long. Crawl out through the fallout, baby, to my loving arms, while those ICBMs keep us free. When you hear me call out, baby, kick the wall out and crawl out through the fallout back to me. Cause you'll be the only girl in the world. Why don't you crawl out through the fallout back to me? Why don't you crawl out through the fallout back to me? Why don't you crawl out through the fallout back to me? There you go. Crawl out through the fallout. I must admit, I got quite the chuckle out of that the first time. <laughs> Let me kiss those radiation burns away. <laughs> Oh, man. So I just thought I'd play that for you tonight. It's a kind of a lighthearted piece written back in the night, performed back in the 1960s, which is funny because that was just before. You know, it's funny how timing plays is everything. Uh, had that played a year or two later, I don't know if they'd have thought it was so funny because guess what had just happened? The Cuban Missile Crisis. And they, uh, Khrushchev had decided that putting you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles on Cuba 90 miles from Florida was a good idea. Now there's a um, there's a little bit of sarcasm in that because it was a lot of things, but a good idea wasn't one of them. I was recently re I just finished a book a little while ago called Northern Fire, and it was about um, I forget the author's name, but um, it was written about the um, politics between Canada and the United States during the Kennedy era, and when Defen Baker was still prime minister. And uh, when Lester Pearson was just coming into his own and uh, John F. Kennedy was president, uh, became president of the United States. And it kind of picks up, the book really starts to pick up just after uh, Eisenhower is defeated by Kennedy uh, to become president of the United States. And to put it mildly, uh, Diefenbaker and um, um, Kennedy did not like each other. Now, I don't want to ruin the whole book for you. If you got a chance to listen to it, I would if I were you. Uh, listen to it. Read it, I mean. It's a very, very interesting piece of Canadian history. And here's a little twist that you may not have known. In, let's see, I think Kennedy was assassinated in the fall of 63, I believe. But just before that, let's say within the year before that, he'd been to Ottawa uh, on a state visit. And in, as we have a tradition of this that still goes on to the best of my knowledge, uh, when a, a high-level dignitary comes to Canada, one of the things they do is they plant a tree in, over at Riedel Hall. So they talked Kennedy into doing it. And when he did it, he had a very bad back. 
Well, they, he injured it again and had to wear a uh, back brace that went from his armpits down to his hips. He was on a tremendous amount of uh, painkillers. Uh, he was not a healthy man, not by any stretch. You wouldn't know that looking at the pictures and watching the video footage or the, cam uh, the, you know, the, the, the mo home movies of him and things like that. But um, the reason I say that there's an interesting little twist here is there's a Canadian element to his assassination. And that is that because he injured his back while planting the tree at Rideau Hall, he had to wear this brace. And he was wearing it that day in Dallas, Texas. And because it held him upright, when the first shot hit him, most people would have slumped forward. And the shooter never would have got off the second shot because there would have been nothing. To, the guy would have fallen forward and been out of his line of sight. He wouldn't have taken that second shot. But because he was in this brace that he was wearing because he re-injured his back up in Ottawa, uh, he couldn't fall forward. So the second fatal shot was the one that killed him, all because he was wearing that brace. Little, a little bit of trivia for him and a little bit of a Canadian for you and a little bit of Canadian trivia um, or Canadian history. Um, it's neither good nor bad. It's just what happened. But, uh, boy, it's funny how little things like that can change, change the whole course of history because you often wonder what would have happened had, um, had Kennedy lived. You know, what kind of president would he have turned into compared to the icon he's looked, on, looked, down, uh, looked at now you know, a lot of people look back at Kennedy with uh, wonder. He almost like he's a saint. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure whether that's true, but certainly um, he has quite a reputation. Anyway, with that said, I just thought I'd share that with you because, boy, I'll tell you, that's a remarkable, remarkable uh, story. Um, when when you read that book, man, I'm telling you, it, it really gives you a deep understanding of... Um, how we got to where we are. Uh, like there was this, uh, they wanted Canada to take nuclear weapons. And Diefenbaker, the only reason why he didn't, the only reason why Diefenbaker didn't was because he wanted to be informed and be involved in the decision to use them. He was a huge nationalist. He loved Canada and he wanted it to maintain its sovereignty from the United States on as many levels as possible. Even though we were, you know, joined at the hip economically, politically, he wanted to be included. He didn't want, should hostilities break out. Remember the time. This is the 1950s, right? Late 1950s. The Cold War is raging. Communists have, a, have the bomb. Sputnik's in the air. Uh, we just killed the Avro Aero program. Um, and there were some side benefits to that. Uh, benefits. I shouldn't say benefits. I should say there were a lot of uh, ripple effects of that. But the, the, the thing is that there was the, the, the politics of, um, of uh, sovereignty and the military and all that were completely different than they are today. The only reason he didn't take nuclear weapons on Canadian soil was because he could not, he was not satisfied. He did not trust that he would be notified by Washington and informed and have a say in whether or not these weapons would be used on the battlefield. He wanted to have... He didn't want to be, you know, the only one to pull the, put his thumb on the trigger, but he didn't want to be left out either. And that was, at that moment, you want to talk about, you know, it's an interesting parallel, I just thought of this, uh, that everybody's complaining about outside interference in American electoral processes, right? Kennedy, 
holy cow, he did everything in his power to bring down Diefenbaker. Just, I, I, I'm not going to tell you how or why or what. Uh, you have to read the book to find out. But boy, it was just unbelievable. The kind of meddling that went on. Um, he was being briefed the whole time um, about, you know, what the polls were. And he was very much in tune um, with what was going on in Canada because of this whole Bomark missile thing. And, and uh, uh, when the Cuban Missile Crisis uh flared up. He didn't ask Canada to participate. Did you ever notice that? That Canada didn't have anything to do with the Cuban Missile Crisis. We sent no surface units to help support the Americans, even though they were our military and economic allies. Canada plays almost no role in that. And it was because of the animosity between the White House and Parliament Hill. And when Pearson got, got elected, boy, Mel, and then Kennedy got killed, so we'll never know what would have transpired otherwise. But Speaking of military assets, uh, I want to shout out a, a great big Bravo Zulu. For those of you with military backgrounds or naval backgrounds, you'll know what that means. It's a uh, job well done. It's the Navy's way of saying way to go. Um, HMCS Saskatoon was involved in probably <coughs> one of the biggest uh, um, drug interdiction stories that I have ever encountered. Fourteen and a half tons of cocaine. Uh, the story starts out this way. Who says Saskatoon is cold in March? Some Central American drug smugglers were certainly feeling the heat from the brave men and women who proudly represent the Western Canadian city on the 105-foot-long <clears throat> uh, crew, 40-member uh, uh, crew. I'm trying to tell you the size of the ship, not how many people are on it. The 40-man crew on HMCS Saskatoon. Um, in the Eastern Pacific, not, they not only pounced on a giant shipment of cocaine that was headed to North American streets, the crew was also put some alleged narcotic pushers before the courts. It also kept tens of millions of dollars out of the hands of drug cartels. HMC Saskatoon intercepted a suspicious vessel initially spotted by a maritime patrol aircraft on routine patrol, said the Canadian Armed Forces, adding the ship was launched, launched a rigid-hulled inflatable, or RIB, with an embarked U.S. Coast Guard law enforcement detachment team to halt the vessel of interest. Three suspected smugglers were apprehended and several bales of cocaine were recovered after the suspected smugglers attempted to jettison their cargo. In cooperation with the United States Coast Guard, Major Steve Nita in Ottawa said they, they, they tell me they seized approximately 660 keys of cocaine on, on March the 12th in international waters in the eastern Pacific Ocean off the coast of Central America. In total, they added up 33 bales of cocaine. They always knew how to rope and hogtie out there in the West, but that was an amazing effort. So, well done, Saskatoon. That's, you know something, this is one of the traditional roles of the Navy, um, to safeguard our waterways, protect our shipping lanes, and to project our you know, foreign policy overseas. And this is a reserve vessel. This is not a Canadian patrol frigate. This is a, a Kingston class. So it's not that big a ship. It's not very fast. It only does about 15 knots. But um, to play a role like that is huge. The crew will be elated with that. You know, they'll be going around high-fiving themselves uh, for a long time over that, as they should. And this is the kind of thing that makes me just glow with pride uh, when these guys pull this off because the, uh, when you're talking about the drug cartels, they don't play games. These guys, the drug cartels have gone so far as to build their own submarines. There was one down in Brazil they found in an estuary 
built that was completely capable of uh, undersea oper underwater operations and could carry tons of cocaine and other narcotics uh, trying to get past the Coast Guard and, and uh, you know, get the stuff. It's almost like the rum running days. Um, you know, they were trying everything they could to get past the uh, secu uh, security forces that were arrayed against them. And Saskatoon has played a, a big role in putting a huge dent in that particular operation. So, well done, Bravo Zulu. Way to go, Navy, is all I can say. That was a great job, and I, I delight in, in congratulating them on it because these are <clears throat> tough times. And one of the things about stories like this that I, I think is important to highlight is this, the Navy is the poor third sister partly because it's so expensive to maintain. It's the most important of the armed forces uh, because of the role that it plays when it carries on overseas and so on. Um, they, they make a tremendous commitment. And I'm not de de uh, deriding any other, you know, the Army or the Air Force. No, no, I'm not saying that at all. As a matter of fact, I've got a good friend of mine who just went on deployment out in Wainwright, won't be back till June. But when a sailor goes to sea, He's gone. He might as well be on the, on, on, on the moon. My, when I first joined my first ship back in the, the winter of 1981, uh, January of 81, I joined the Saguenay in Funchal, Madeira, and I didn't see home again for six months. Now, I was a single man, brand new off the farm, green as grass, didn't know nothing from nothing. There are those who would say that's still true today. But, you know, I'm just delighted with, with this story because... It helps raise the profile of the Navy and helps uh, uh, reinforce the need for it and why they need new vessels and why we should really work hard at getting the um, military procurement right so we never get, end up in a situation like we're in now with the shipbuilding contracts and the nonsense that's going on. Um, we never fall into that situation, but so far that doesn't seem to be any sign of changing anytime soon. So all I can say there is... Uh, Ready, I ready, and bravo, Zulu, guys, you did a great job. All right. Uh, let's see. I want to thank my guest again from, this, from the first hour, Ron Barr. I certainly hope you enjoyed that interview. I know I did. It's more like I, had, I was doing interviews. I've always done interviews, of course, and one of the things that uh, I, I like um, when I do an interview, it's not so much a Q&A as, as much as it is a conversation. And I, I tend to think people enjoy that, well, as, as much, depending on who the host is. Sometimes I don't know enough to be able to have a conversation. And then you go to the questions because you're asking questions you hope your audience likes. But in Ron's case, he and I have a lot in common when it comes to our trucking backgrounds and so on. So I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did, and I'll be looking forward to having him back again on the, on the show. Well, that pretty much wraps it up for me tonight, folks. Thank you all for listening. Uh, again, as always, you can send me an email at nick at latenightcouncil.com. Send me a message on Facebook if you enjoyed the show or if you have any comments. Um, anything along that line, by all means, uh, feel free to uh, uh, connect with me anytime. With that said, it's time for us to bid ourselves good evening. Good evening. God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace. And may you have a fair wind and a following sea. Spent it in good company And all the harm I've ever done Alas, it was to none but me And all 
Great. 